0: Radio.
1: Radio.
0: Stories at the intersection of music and life.
1: Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com. And it features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on Music Life Radio, we talk with Steve Moriarty. Steve is a drummer who has played in many bands, but most notably in the Seattle punk band The Gets. In the first part of this interview, we talk to Steve about his background as a jazz drummer. How spending a year in Spain changed his worldviews, his Antioch College experience, joining the punk band The Gets, and the Seattle music scene in the early nineteen nineties. Sit back and enjoy another episode of Music Life Radio. This one entitled "Drummer's Day: The Steve Moriarty Story." Welcome, Steve, to Music Life Radio. I'm glad you could come down. I'm glad I could join you. I'd like to just ask where you were born. What your earliest musical influences were? What kind of memories of music did you have when you were growing up?
2: Where was I born? I was born in Indianapolis, and uh, my biggest musical influence was my green Fuji uh, John Coltrane cassette that I used to ride around on my bicycle and listen to. Prior to that, it was AM radio and... <laughs> requesting songs in the middle of the night and trying to get the the DJ to play like ballroom blitz. Oh, okay, by yeah. Sweet, Sweet, the Sweet. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, that's a great song. I still song. love that song because oh, they, I do. Too. <laughs> in the beginning, they go, "Ready, Steve," yeah. and I thought, "Oh, that could be me one day." <laughs> exactly, Andy. Yeah, <laughs> Matt. Okay.
1: What were your parents listening to when you were growing up? Were they big music guys? Uh,
2: my uh, father was a bass player and, and a piano player and, um, singer and arranger. And he, uh, uh owned a music store. He liked big band. Mm-hmm. He was into fifties jazz. Yeah, yeah. Basically. Okay. When did you first
1: learn to play the drums?
2: My father, he was a advocate of, of me taking music lessons. And so, uh, I took lessons for $5 an hour. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a half an hour. Half an hour drum lessons, five bucks. It's $5 for a pair of sticks, $5 for the book. And uh, once a week for about five years or six years, I studied jazz and uh, jazz drumming from an old jazz dude named Charles Maestropolo who played on the original Tonight Show. What he said that was cool that I always remembered was. Uh, you know, if you're a musician, you're like any other worker. You're like any other tradesman. Mm-hmm. You, you need to get paid for what you do, mm-hmm. and so that was where one of the biggest conflicts I've had in the rock and roll world and in the club scene is uh, the idea that, you know, that you're not respected as a, as someone who's providing a service. You're practically Paying to play at a lot of bars <laughs> by, by uh, buying drinks or yeah. getting your friends to show up you're you 're mm. being used by clubs when I was a kid, starting at age thirteen i I worked and I worked at a theater that had traveling Broadway shows and uh, concerts, so uh, I got exposed to a lot of really cool music from uh, thirteen till about eighteen or nineteen hmm. so I saw first touring version of like a chorus line and uh, Bob Fosse's dancing and uh, lots of revival shows, but um, also a lot of amazing dance performances and uh, performers like Johnny Cash and Hmm. the Beach Boys and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. And I eventually I worked my way up from uh, uh, Soda and Popcorn cellar mm-hmm. <laughs> uh in the aisles to people at uh at the breaks to work in backstage and work cleaning the dressing rooms mm-hmm. uh, and coming in during the day and cleaning up after the show. And so I would hang out and talk to the musicians when they were rehearsing, talk to the drummers and uh just get to know what they did and sort of hang out with them and f- do errands for them and stuff. So I got to meet a lot of these famous, interesting people and uh it was a really cool job for a kid. Wow, yeah, that's really neat. I met Liberace and Wayne Newton and, wow. <laughs> and uh, Dick Van Dyke, Rosemary Clooney, Sammy Davis Jr. I saw Liberace like seven fucking times. <laughs> what was the name of the venue? Was- it was called Starlight Musicals, and oh, okay. it was in the... The, it was a big theater at Butler University in uh, Indianapolis. Oh, okay. Now, what was your first rock band? My first rock band was called Dionysus. Uh-huh. And, I had, and uh, I had a bass drum head that my brother painted. It yeah. said Dionysus on it, and it had like two cups of wine and i was like dionysus is like the greek party god yeah yeah. god of wine (laughs) that must be cool so we had a (laughs) we had a light show you know made up of like stolen christmas lights that you know we put into (laughs) tin cans and put cords on and hung them on uh coat hangers and around the stage and made a little stage show it was kind of like you're uh little stage plots that you would draw on your notebook when you're a kid in middle school, yeah. you know? So the first band I was in, I, I think I was 11 or 12. And I remember we covered China Grove by the Doobie Brothers, who I just saw at the Bridge School benefit. It was surreal. Huh. And uh, Another One Bites the Dust by Queen, 12 years old. Yeah, and our first gig was at a Unitarian church.
1: So this was actually before you were even doing the lessons?
2: No, I was no. I was okay. doing the drum lessons by age ten or eleven. Okay, it's like a year. Right. So it. right
1: right into it. Yeah, started it. Okay. Yeah. So you were taking jazz lessons, but you end up in rock bands.
2: Yeah, because there, I could not find other twelve yeah. and thirteen year olds <laughs> <laughs> that were into jazz. They yeah, just yeah. didn't exist. I had yeah. my John Coltrane tape, and I yeah. was like my partner. You know, in jazz were these. Uh, it was like Elvin Jones, and <laughs> those are my uh, musical heroes. But at one point. At about sixteen, I I had to decide, you know, what I was if I was going to go with jazz or a rock, and I I decided I had, you know, there's a real difference between a uh, a good jazz drummer and a rock drummer, and uh, the difference is many many hours of study and mm. complete and utter dedication to that craft, and mm. and that wasn't something that I. Uh, it didn't fit my temperament. I wasn't patient enough, and mm-hmm. I uh, had too many other interests that I wanted to pursue. Uh, that, but I always loved it, you know. But never felt like uh, I was a proficient jazz drummer. Mm-hmm. It takes a level of syncopation and uh, sort of being able to have a completely different rhythm and time in each limb. In both hands and both feet, Uh, syncopated, however, playing completely different rhythms simultaneously. Mm -hmm. It's like being able to have four brains, like Mm -hmm. one for each limb. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, They say, like, an octopus has a different part of its brain for each uh, tentacle. That's Uh kind of like (laughs) what uh, my uh, father in law's name is George Marsh, and he teaches uh, percussion and. Drums, drumming at, uh, at music at, uh, Sonoma State and University of Santa Cruz. And he is a polyrhythmic, uh, hmm. drummer. And, uh, watching him, it's like a, it's another, it's like another instrument, really. It's, a, it's another, uh, whole different can of worms. Hmm. So I, uh, took the easy way out. And and uh, sort of, but it was also my culture, you know. I mean, I grew up in a rock and roll culture. I was a pissed Mm. off kid. Yeah. I uh, needed to get out of where I was living. And, uh, you know, my friends liked music and uh, rock music. And so that's what I ended up doing.
1: How many bands were you in throughout your high, high school, junior high, and high school days? And probably four
2: or five four or five okay yeah. so you were really active, yeah, I had cover bands in high school yeah. always cover bands, and we oh. we would try to write originals, played in all kinds of bands in high school and jazz bands and marching bands, and actually played some gigs for money and uh, almost ran away with the circus to be a drummer in a circus at like seventeen uh, but there was an opportunity to write an essay in order to get, get a scholarship to go to uh, Europe, to, to go anywhere actually, mm-hmm. to, to, for a senior year of high school. And I, uh, I left the country. So, you,
1: did you win the essay contest? The- I was the only one that applied. Oh,
2: okay. <laughs> <laughs> in Indiana, I was the only guy that wanted to go abroad from, huh. my, from my town anyway. And uh, so uh, they could have sent me anywhere, and they sent me to Spain. And, uh, north of spain and uh, so i went up there and uh lived with a family in the basque region in the north uh and went to a high school up there and i was the only uh, american there they hated americans because <laughs> reagan was the president yeah. and he had air bases there and uh uh-huh. uh iran contra and all that stuff was going on and uh one time I, I went to school, and I didn't speak any Spanish either. I lied and said I did, and <laughs> so I arrived. I didn't speak any Spanish. And, and, uh, and so I formed a band so I could make friends. Yeah, uh, So I joined a band and uh, toured around Spain playing songs. And I I remember we did uh, – there were a lot of Spanish sort of new wave and punk bands at that time, and so we would cover their songs – uh and uh, we had some of our own songs and then we uh did blue jean by by David Bowie uh-huh and I got to sing that cuz I cuz I knew the English words mm-hmm. I got to sing and <laughs> play drums so that's how I learned to sing and play drums uh and so I got there I stopped going to high school and sort of uh hung out and learned Spanish hanging out at the bars uh, because everybody does that there. There was a bar in my high school. Huh. I mean, I could go down and have a beer at lunch huh. and smoke cigarettes, like right in the, uh, the classroom. It was completely crazy from mm. being a kid from Indiana, yeah. like one of the most conservative states in the <laughs> country. And my parents were from there too. And uh, to end up in this socialist country where the, the youth pretty much ran the government and the country. Mm. Uh, there were very few, the social mores were really different. Uh, people smoked hash. It was legal to smoke weed there since 1975, and uh, kind of walked into that world and loved it.
1: Yeah, so that had a huge impact on, on your, the rest of your life, I would assume.
2: Well, learning Spanish did, yeah. and over there, I, I guess the work ethic kicked in, and I started teaching English, and uh, drums a little bit, and fell in love with the girl. And uh, they, she didn't speak any English, so I had to learn Spanish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I still maintain that the best way to learn a language is to fall in love with somebody.
1: <laughs> it really forces you to focus, yeah.
2: huh? <laughs> uh, one time I went to the high yeah. school, though, and it, uh, on the schoolyard wall, it, someone had spray-painted... Uh, Yankee del Instituto a casa, which meant uh, Yankee from the high school, go home. Oh, okay. <laughs> In red letters, and I, was, <laughs> I never went back after that. <laughs> I was like, these kids don't like me.
1: <laughs> and so they
2: you- were ser- pretty serious, like political uh, anarchists, and yeah. they would beat you up for your political views. They would beat. They would call me out at uh, to fight. Because I was American. They would call me out into the street to fight. (laughs) Wow. It was insane. And I I had no idea why. I didn't understand. I was politically ignorant. Yeah. But after that, I wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) I I, I had a view of kind of how, uh, uh, what imperialism was and how the United States affected these other countries and other people in other countries. And Spain had a lot of solidarity with Nicaragua and El Salvador Mm -hmm. and, uh. The countries that the Guatemala that the u s was funding death squads and mm-hmm. and right wing militias, and that wasn 't something that they were talking about in my high school in Indiana, no, but in my high school that. in Spain they were uh-huh. there were big demonstrations that were anti Reagan and I would have to hide yeah. <laughs> uh, because I'd get attacked you know, I was like, walking around blonde with my ripped blue
1: jeans you know so how did you end up? Going back to the States.
2: Uh, so, actually, in that band I was in, we were offered a tour. It was like International Youth Month, and we were going to uh, do a tour, but my visa expired
0: after okay. a year,
2: and I had mm-hmm. to come home. It was a drag. I think I would have stayed. Mm, okay. So, the visa either.
1: expired, and you ended up coming back. And then, uh, so soon after that, I'm assuming you finished up high school and went to Antioch College.
2: I uh, I said I went to my high school and I said I finished high school <laughs> in Spain and uh, handed them a document in Spanish.
1: And they couldn't it read was, it. A, they couldn't read it
2: and they signed off. I couldn't believe it. And I got a diploma. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: diploma. classic. <laughs> I,
2: I walked in on the last day of school uh, at the school at the Spanish high school and I said. I went up to the principal who I'd never met and said, hi, I just wanted to thank you for a wonderful year. And if uh, all I need is uh, your signature here to say that I attended school and, and uh, thank you very much. And so he said, sure. So we signed the thing and then I had someone else write it out. It's it's funny what you'll do to, to sort of uh, survive adolescence. But I feel like that's what I was just trying to do. <laughs> just trying to get through it. I was trying to survive adolescence yeah. by uh, like hustling my way through it because otherwise, I think probably would have been suicidal.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Wow! Because of my home life and because of my, you know I had I was born born I had depression as a kid.
1: Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So how did you get into Antioch?
2: So. Oh, I uh, was it admitted to a DePaul University uh, on a soccer scholarship. Oh, okay. And I think they thought because I played pickup games in Spain, yeah, that I was really good. <laughs> no, but I was a good soccer goalie. I could stop, you know, I I could stop the ball, and I could. Uh, I was a good goalie in high school, uh-huh. and uh, got a soccer scholarship, and. Um, but I got back to the States, and I didn't want to go to that school. No. Uh, and then I visited Antioch, which was in Ohio, and it was uh, listed as like one of the most progressive schools in, uh, in the country, and you could be openly gay there, and I thought that was cool. And uh, they talked about the different student organizations they had, and uh, when I visited, there was like a hammer and sickle painted on on one of the dorm room walls. And I, I was like, this is the school for me.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so at anyway, college sounds like a perfect fit right after uh,
2: Spain. After Spain, yeah. it was a perfect fit, yeah. A progressive, you know, left-wing school that had, uh, you could design your own major. There were no grades. It was all evaluations. And so uh, I knew I could play music there. And um, I could study whatever I wanted, and I didn't have to play soccer, and I didn't have to be a good boy and follow in my parents' footsteps. Because mm-hmm. Both of my parents and my grandfather had gone to that other school. Paul? Yeah, yeah, I was supposed to be in a fraternity and stuff, ah, okay. I just couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so as a result, uh, how many years later, I'm still in debt from that. From that experience, that Antioch experience, I'm still paying that off in student loans. But, uh, you know, I had no concept of money. Even though I worked, you know, $40,000 didn't seem like that much Uh (laughs) because it was a loan and they were just going to give it to me. And it was at like 11% interest or something.
1: Really? Wow. That's hot. It was really high. Yeah.
2: (laughs) That was in. That was Reganomics.
1: Oh, yeah. Thanks, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Did you get into a band immediately when you got to the school, before you met okay. uh, Matt, Andy, and Mia?
2: Yeah, I immediately got into a band at the school, and uh, we named it Big Brown House. Okay. I guess we formed in about 1986, probably started playing in 85, and by 86 we had a name, and we played a lot in Dayton and uh, Columbus, Ohio, and uh, all the towns in between, and the different colleges. There was a lot mm-hmm. of colleges in Ohio because, yeah. uh, in the hundred years ago, that was like the far west. So if you wanted to yeah. start a, uh your own college, you would m- go to Ohio because it was the other side of the Appalachians. Mm-hmm. And you, there you could have freedom in education, and mm. so there are a lot of co- there. More colleges, I think, in Ohio than anywhere else. And so we played at at uh, Oberlin and all the different uh, colleges that were there uh, Kent State and mm-hmm. uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. We played there and Indianapolis. And it was quite a good band, actually. It was kind of, uh, we were influenced a lot by U2 because they were kind of uh, peaking right about then. And mm-hmm. the U2 Boy album came out. Mm hmm. We were really into that, and uh, the the cult first two cult records. Oh yeah, the cult love came out. So we were yeah, kind of into the psychedelic heavy rock. Yeah, like Killing Joke, and uh, uh-huh. and there was a lot of abandoned buildings on the Antioch campus, so we were able to inhabit them and just set up studios in the old abandoned dorm rooms and put mattresses on the walls and and uh, play until late at night. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun.
1: Here's Big Brown House with The Raft. Well, somewhere amidst
0: the crashing waves Like Raft and a no circle in charge
2: was with Ben London, who later formed Alcohol, Funny Car, and Sanford Arms. And uh, he was one of the curators at the Experience Music Project. And uh, now he works for the Grammys. And the other two guys, uh, I don't know what happened, Roger and Adrian, uh, both kept playing in bands. I was uh, swayed over to play with the Gits uh, at that same time, about 87, Mm -hmm. 88. Uh, those guys Mia and Andy and Matt moved out to San Francisco to play for a while and uh, they uh, wanted to volunteer at the farm which was a a community center with a garden where they taught you know food where food comes from to wow. inner city youth yeah, yeah. and they would have had a big room and they would do punk rock shows there to to pay for it and so they uh, would stage manage or bartend or uh, whatever. They would work there at the shows and made lots of friends and made a lot of connections and uh, got a different guy to play drums, Bruce Ducheneau, who was drummer for uh, Assassins of God. And uh, let's see, Gary Floyd's band, uh, Black Kali Ma, great drummer. And he sat in with them and they played The Farm few times, and bands that they that they booked and played with were some of the you know most influential punk bands of ever really from uh, uh, California anyway, but they came back and said, "Wow, you know we saw these bands uh social Distortion and the bad brains and and uh minor threat and Verbal abuse. Or, oh, yeah. You know, I don't know what the other band, uh, MDC, uh, Dead Kennedys, of course, uh, the San Francisco band called Tragic Mulatto that mm-hmm. later turned into the Mud Women mm-hmm. uh, that played there. So uh, all those bands would on tour would play there because the scene was so small the replacements uh when they got back from the farm they said steve we really gotta we gotta step it up we gotta play like these guys and we gotta be in the scene so we rehearsed um we just wrote songs and played music and uh kind of influenced by those bands and kind of not Mm -hmm. because mia was a uh uh, you know, I was kind of a Catholic school girl from Louisville, Kentucky. So she <laughs> she was into the blues and mm-hmm. uh, blues singers mm-hmm. and Billie Holiday and you know just the rock and roll that she heard. But uh, she kind of brought that blues element into it, and she knew Sarah Vaughn and and Billy and uh, Etta James and uh, Bessie Smith, and they were all her. Yeah, what she was listening to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she also liked, you know, this new music. She this was new hearing. music she yeah. heard, and she was like, wanted to combine it in her delivery and in her lyrics, so she could write a song that had a lot of passion and uh, uh, blues elements and uh, sort of a, a, a universal appeal to uh people's who listened you know that to their lives and uh and she could do it at like 10 times the speed of anyone else <laughs> if you listen to some of the songs on the gets records like uh uh spirit magic helmet or wingo lamo or insecurities or uh twisting breathing or uh here 's to your fuck I mean these songs are are really f tempo punk songs and the the lyrics aren 't aren't simplistic or trite they're they're really really well written and and uh dynamic and she could deliver it that way mm-hmm. but she was also pissed off yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as well as had the blues so she she uh she could uh, combine the two, like like no one that I really had heard before, and Powers, who she started at uh, Rolling Stone, but she writes, uh, I think for Salon and the New York Times, and uh, she's just written a book about Tori Amos, or co wrote Ghost mm-hmm. wrote, or co wrote a book about Tori Amos Amos whatever, but. Uh, she just said that uh, a lot of singers are influenced by Mia, but don't probably don't know that they are mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like uh <laughs> skateboarding, you know, that be, the sort of tricks and things that people are able to do develop because somebody breaks through a particular barrier to achieving that. Yeah, And I th- Mia kind of did that musically. And then you hear like the distillers later, uh, or, you know, like a, uh, Hardcore or a female led punk band. I think of the distillers, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, Yeahs. Yep.
1: So you were, you formed up in uh, Antioch. What made you
2: decide to move out to Seattle? It was as far away from Ohio as we could get. Mm-hmm. And it was either going to be San Francisco or Seattle. But at that point, there was a lot of warehouses like this, and, mm-hmm. uh, it was a lot cheaper to live there. And, uh, I, had heard that there were cool bands here, mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Uh, that, so that would have been right around eighty nine or so. Uh, it was this summer of eighty summer of eighty nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Moved to Seattle, and uh, it was like an Indian summer. It stayed sunny until like Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, God, man, everyone said this place is rainy. It's not rainy. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. It's, a, it's nice in the summertime, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it started raining, and it didn't stop until like July yeah. or something. So <laughs> <laughs> it tricked me. And uh, so we actively started trying to find gigs. At that point, there was only like two or three places to play in the whole town. And uh, it was like a Tuesday night at the Bogue. Saturday night at the Central, which was in the touristy area, and Friday night at a hole in the wall called Squid Row. Yeah. And that's where everybody played. There was about a dozen bands, and we all hung out at the Comet and drank together, and we all knew each other. And Sub Pop was putting out some records, and uh, we thought, well, we can do that too. Why do we have to ask Sub Pop to do it? We don't really sound like those bands. Yeah. And we don't want anyone to tell us what to do. And we certainly don't want to uh, sign over the publishing to our music, which the sub-pop bands were doing. And so we uh, put out our own compilation record called Bobbing for Pavement that came out in 91. Hmm. It took us a while to get together. And we uh, just kind of organized a compilation record that was – uh, all the bands that we hung out with and drank with at the Comet. Another Shot of Whiskey by The Gits. Are you walk in with another headache I can tell by the lines
0: in your face You seem to think if you just remove that problem The answer's the The crime of fate is what I have to follow through If I'm going
2: all lived in a big house we called it the rat house because there were rats that lived in it too (laughs) (laughs) but uh you know it was a three-bedroom house and at times it'd be like 12 or 13 people living there and touring bands would play there but we we all we rehearsed in the uh the basement area and uh, helped seven-year bitch get started they were a band uh, from seattle who were all women and they uh Really loved uh, Babes in Toyland and L Seven and the Lunatics, and they uh, wanted to do that. And wanted to rock, and they lived there off and on as well. And we all shared gear, and uh, we would play gigs together. And we couldn't get gigs, so we the set them up our own <laughs> yeah. ourselves, or do it in the living room, or so we just we couldn't be stopped. And then at one point, uh, Jonathan, one of the two guys that own Sub Pop, uh, got crushed out on Mia, our singer, and asked her out. <laughs> and she reported, she told us, you know, this guy, you know, Jonathan something or other asked me out and they for a drink, and Mia could really drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the Jonathan guy couldn't. And she kind of, I don't know what happened, but uh, he did ask her out again and she, uh, declined. Up to that point, Sub Pop uh, was very interested in the gits (laughs) and putting out a a single (laughs) and actually giving us a gig opening for Nirvana at the University of Washington ballroom. And uh, it was our biggest gig ever. It was like 2,000 people there. Uh, And that was before Nevermind came out, but still... They were, it was fun. We got to hang out with them, and uh, Tad was on that bill as well. No, no, no. That uh, was Nirvana, Tad, and us. Uh, I would have loved
1: to have seen that one.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that the drummer for Nirvana stole my hi-hat stand.
1: Yeah. That was Chad at yeah, that time? And, and yeah. Chad Channing.
2: I think Chad stole my. If you have it, <laughs> it's the one held together with a nail at the bottom. That's mine. Uh,. So we thought, hey, you know, maybe these guys will help us put out records and be our record label. But uh, they dissed us from there on out. And <laughs> Mia was not about to go out with the guy just to yeah, she get a see. record contract <laughs> or anything. <laughs> so you just
1: took things into your own hands and uh, started putting out your own music? That
2: uh, we started talking to people about release. We, we, we put out two or three singles, including. Uh, one that was uh released by a San Francisco label called broken records or k i d s I think we're like his one of his very early releases, maybe third or fourth uh the, the song second scan that ended up being kind of our hit mm-hmm. if our version of a hit gosh that was ninety one and he's still selling'. them. We had that connection in San Francisco, so when we came down here we had we knew people and uh we actually became more popular in San Francisco than we did in Seattle, mm. and it was always great to come down here and then uh, hook up with our friends in bands here, and Steel Pole Bathtub was a band then, mm-hmm. right. and uh, who else?
1: Yeah, you seemed, the gets. music always seemed to me to fit in kind of better in the Bay Area. Well, or at, l- at least with those types of bands, as opposed yeah. to uh, grunge bands. You know? We didn't
2: quite, yeah. we didn't quite fit up there. There was this other whole underground punk scene that wasn't yeah. part of that grunge scene. I mean, if you think about it, it was uh, grunge bands. Maybe w- would be considered Soundgarden, Mudhoney, Nirvana, Tad. There was a band called Cat Butt. Yeah. Oh, Dickless. Yeah. It was a, They were a really good band, actually. Uh, All Women and Jack and Dino also put out their record and had a great thing going. Uh, they were on Sub Pop. Uh, on the Sub Pop 100 record. I, th- I don't know if they were on it, but the bands on there, uh, you know, they were heavy. Uh, they were usually a guy screaming, front person, mm-hmm. and... Uh, catchy songs, but when I was back in college, I i got, I would book the bands who played at the college, like actually book the Dead Kennedys in Antioch, as well as uh, Camper Van Beethoven, Meat Puppets, uh, t- a bunch of different bands that would be on tour. Uh, and college gigs were great, because colleges had money, and oh, yeah. there was a dorm, and you mm-hmm. could eat in the cafeteria, <laughs> and do your laundry, and you know, bands would show up and not leave. I mean, for a while there. There were yeah. like all bands from all over the country just kind of camping out in Antioch.
1: I read somewhere that you actually built the stage for the Dead Kennedy show. Yeah, built the
2: stage <laughs> for the Dead Kennedy show. We uh there was a condemned building that was a theater building and we uh broke the lock and broke in and built the stage and and they came and Jello had just was in trouble for a record that he put out with a H.R. Geiger painting called The Penis Fields. Yeah. And had just been raided, his offices had just been raided by the FBI, and he was charged with pornog- child pornography or distributing pornography to minors or, hmm. and, uh, I don't know, something like that. They were trying to nail him because he was running for mayor of San Francisco and was... Uh, uh, leftist, and I uh, oh. was writing songs about Pete Wilson and <laughs> and Jerry Brown, and uh, he, uh, the FBI. That was the Cold War, right? He yeah. was he was a he, he was a threat. <laughs> uh, so they were fucking with him, and they actually FBI showed up at the concert at the show that we booked, and you know there are all these. Hunks from all over the Midwest came there to see them. Uh, these guys showed up in brand new blue jeans and tennis shoes and like these mirror sunglasses <laughs> with with thirty five millimeter cameras around their necks and uh, bulges, you know, and they <laughs> under their coat, under their blue jean jacket, and we're like, "Who the fuck are these people?" And it turned out, you know, they were FBI. They were there to monitor the. The, the crowd, and they were taking pictures of the people that were there. And uh, and uh, we got together with a bunch of us who were putting on the show and and kicked them out. They, they wouldn't tell us who they were or why they were there and why they were taking pictures, and they wouldn't show us any ID, and so we threw them out. <laughs> I later found out it, it was the FBI. Wow. It was a different time, but that... that was a li- that was a pretty life changing experience. That was before the Gits went out to San Francisco and saw you know all those bands that were mm-hmm. out touring at that time. I couldn't believe it. You know, people stay jumping off the stage head first. <laughs> uh, it's long before Pearl Jam was like popularizing stage diving on MTV and uh, and the pit and the. the all those punks in one place and and all the uh love that was there and the insanity and the energy and the uh I I had never seen anything like it. I was blown away. I can't remember if I had a if we opened the show or just like ran the show, but that I knew that's what I wanted to do, that I, I found yeah. the music I was gonna do. It wasn't gonna be jazz. <laughs> it was gonna be way simpler and it was yeah. gonna it was gonna be way more social, I think. It had to have some kind of meaning.
0: Hey, what do we got here? Wingo Lamey. <laughs> when I'm going to the bar When I'm there trying to ignore No, it's a tear at me will make me free okay.
2: You were in Seattle. What was the first tour you guys did in the Gits? We booked our uh, ourselves and we uh, just went to San Diego and back. Usually, so we did a whole lot of West Coast tours uh, because if you were going to go east, like the next gig is mm-hmm. like Moscow, Idaho, and uh, you know we had like. Andy and Matt were Jewish, and and uh, Mia had like these crazy dreadlocks and like dressed in rags, and uh, I had this long hair, and it was we had this sort of uh, bias against uh, Middle America. Uh-huh. <laughs> like you, you'd Idaho. already been there, and you like didn't really want did, to go back. <laughs> they, they were like the Aryan nations. Yeah. And things <laughs> were quite active at that point, and uh, we thought maybe. We had a policy like, Idaho, we won't go. Because <laughs> you have to go through Idaho to like get to the rest of the country yeah. to tour. So we stayed on the West Coast. We went down around the Southwest a bit. Uh, and uh, we did it a whole lot. A lot. So we yeah. developed a draw. yeah. And then uh, jumped forward a little bit, I guess. We played a lot around Seattle and uh, Olympia, Portland, uh Vancouver, Canada and uh Bellingham, Washington and spokane and uh well was but one, people were yeah. coming to Seattle, I mean you didn't have to tour, yeah I mean like the, uh, the there was a lot going on country, right around that time yeah all the national press was coming there mm-hmm. to, to see bands nah. and I booked the okay Hotel at that time because we couldn't get gigs, so I said, okay. I'll when be get booker. gigs, I'll start booking a club and then book my band. Yeah, What was one of your favorite or more, most
1: memorable shows in Seattle? Or any time, really, when you were in the Gits?
2: There were two shows. Our first CD release party, when we got back from Europe, we toured Europe. We couldn't really get the money together or find anyone to book a tour for us in the U.S., we said, fuck it, we'll go to Europe. And so we booked, we contacted these, sent our singles to some people that we knew through friends in uh, Amsterdam, and they they loved the gets. They were like, we'll book you a tour. And so we went over to Europe, and when we got back, we were there for a couple of months, and when we got back, all of a sudden we were popular in Seattle. Yeah. Because (laughs) we had booked a tour of Europe by ourselves without any booking agent, and People were like, hey, these guys must be cool. Or <laughs> yeah. So our first show back, we were really tight. We played the OK Hotel, and it was sold out, and uh, it was awesome. And everyone was yelling, when is your record coming out? When are you going to make an album? <laughs> and that's when people started offering to put our records out. Uh, and so we talked to different labels, and uh, it was a very difficult decision. And we made the wrong choice. And we put out a record with uh, a Sub Pop employee who had said qu- he quit Sub Pop, but he was actually fired huh. from Sub Pop. He did the distribution. Yeah. So we thought, hey, this has got to know something about music business, right? He uh, I guess I won't mention any names anymore. I'm kind of done. We... Insisted that we would keep the publishing rights. We would own the rights to the music, mm-hmm. but he owned the master tapes because he, quote, paid for the recordings mm-hmm. and paid for the actual two or three hundred bucks for the two inch tape that mm-hmm. the masters went on. And we uh, didn't have any money to do it ourselves. And so we said, okay. I think we recorded the first record for 2000 and the next one for like three or four thousand. We signed a two record deal with him. And uh uh shortly after he also had put out our friends' band, so we kinda thought, you know, we'll stay with them, like Hammerbox and uh Seven Year Bitch, and they were having okay experiences, they were selling records, they were doing tours. Uh, but the guy had uh some some issues, I guess, and uh money wasn't accounted for and uh, we sold a lot of records and never saw any money. And hmm. he uh, would make T-shirts and sell them and then charge them against us, mm-hmm. you know, not yeah. give us the money for the T-shirts. Wow. It was very strange. What, what label was were those two albums released on? It was called CZ Records. CZ Records. Yeah. Okay.
1: And then Hammerbox uh, was on that and some other bands. Yeah. Uh,
2: Hammerbox. And he, he made some compilations that actually had like... Uh, the Deep Six compilation, which mm-hmm, I think yeah. preceded Sub Pop One Hundred and One, had like Nirvana and Soundgarden and, and uh, yeah. Malfunction and the Melvins yeah. and stuff. Uh, well, we played some great shows. I mean, uh, when our first record came out, we played. Uh, we started headlining, even though you know we we our goal was to open for bigger bands and. uh and we like to play with friends' bands, so uh, we open. We played with open for DOA one show, and uh, that was a, a great experience because after as long as that band had been together, uh, ha- I had always loved DOA, and uh, they were awesome. And mm-hmm. we played really well that night, and uh, it was just like a great one of those memorable punk rock shows that. Months, years later, yeah. before. Like, How was that before that so. DOA yeah. Git show? And <laughs> same thing with their Nirvana Tad Git show. People remembered that. Yeah. And I had people emailing me from uh, Switzerland and Germany asking for the the missing board tape from the Nirvana huh. Git show in uh, Seattle in 1990 that uh, it got so crowded that they pulled the fire alarms to try to empty out half the house so that ah. they could admit more people. <laughs> make more money wow uh, and that's when i first met chris and kurt yeah we were drinking tequila with them in the dressing room and they they were trashing the dressing room it was a classroom yeah and they were just trashing the chairs and throwing them against the wall and stuff and we were just trying to stay out of the way and we're just kind of like whoa dudes get out <laughs> and they took a cooler full of like ice water and like dumped it all over the uh the floor and and being they were being rock stars, and we <laughs> thought they were pretty ridiculous, but hey, you know, they were nice enough to play to give us the gig, and yeah, they were cute, <laughs> they were cute oh, um, that's funny yeah. and the Chad was drumming with them still, mm-hmm. he was their first drummer, and he uh they were funny looking because like chris is huge. was huge, s- was super like, tall. S- yeah, and uh. Chad was little and had really really long hair like down to yeah. his knees practically <laughs> and he played this old drum set that looked like old like oil barrels or something and uh <laughs> but they they were really really good and yeah. uh I I was really impressed I was also really impressed with Tad and uh always thought that he uh was one of the uh one of the best uh Guys out there playing writing music, and his he was truly a, a grunge band, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Dad, he was really talented. Yeah, I mean, I, mean I think he
1: has a jazz drumming background too, if I, if I recall, he plays everything, I mean, yeah. doesn't
2: he? Yeah, and so he always had great drummers, and yeah. uh,
1: but the, guy and the drummer see, in
2: his band was amazing too, yeah. You know, if he were uh, you know, 200, 200 pounds lighter, and and uh, nope. My phone. And, uh, you know, young and cute. I'm sure that that band would have been huge. Yeah. But he was overweight and had a beard and looked like a lumberjack. So, <laughs> yeah. But he, he was a talented guy. A lot of those record labels descended on Seattle at that point. Um, and uh, it was an exciting time. Well, I don't know if you know the story. The New Musical Express or Melody Maker, one of the English... Uh, Magazines magazine yeah. Press Guy Came out to Seattle And wrote About the Seattle scene And how cool it was And I think uh, Sub Pop Had flown them out To see a showcase Of bands mm-hmm. And uh, And so all The writer Was popular And the Article was widely Read, uh, read And So Lots of press Started coming uh, but, I, you know, I wonder what the main events were that le- actually turned the corner. There was a, later a, uh article in the New York Times called The Lexicon of Grunge, and some journalist in the art section had called the woman that uh, answered the phone at Sub Pop, and uh, she was kind of a character, and had a good sense of humor and he needed some quotes. And so she offered him some quotes (laughs) and grunge. Then was one of the quotes that she said. And I think he asked her like, how would you describe the Seattle sound? And, she said you know it was kind of like the stuff that gets stuck on your shoes in <laughs> november in seattle when it rains every day that just never comes off it's kind of mixed with i don't know what she said but she said kind of like grungy grunge and that's how that
1: <laughs> yeah
2: as one of the legends i guess yeah. the, how the yeah. term came up uh but i mean it was just rock and roll i mean soundgarden uh i heard their their first record i thought was uh Really powerful, but you know, it's like they either there was a group of bands that sounded like Black Sabbath, yeah. Uh, you know, there's a group, there's like the, the Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, or the Stooges influence. Yeah. So you've got the Stooges, Mud Honey, you've got Led Zeppelin with Soundgarden, and uh. Nirvana, maybe. And you've got uh see Black Sabbath with uh Melvins and and uh Skinnyard and uh mm-hmm. Soundgarden again is like Black Sabbath. Yeah. Really. Yeah, see, we played all ages shows, a lot of all ages shows, uh at a place called Washington Hall, which was an old uh like uh, Ethiopian meeting hall, mm-hmm. like it was an old gymnasium where they had uh, punks would organize shows. And we would play play there with bands like, uh, oh, the Tree People, they were on CZ as well, that's mm-hmm. uh, Built to Spill, later became Built mm-hmm. to Spill, and uh, Christ on a Crutch, uh, which was a band that moved out to Seattle. And they. Uh, this is what these guys ended up doing, you know, the bass player... Uh, from Christ on a crutch who was a hardcore band that we used to play with ended up as uh Nate uh, ended up being the bass player in uh Foo Fighters he hmm. still playing in bass for them uh we played with uh we played a show with the accused and uh, tree people some other band and i remember the singer from the accused like was jumping up and down but like he gained a little weight too it was like a speed metal band, and mm-hmm. he fell through the stage. Like, no. That was a memorable moment. <laughs> there were a lot of laughs. Uh, there was like Kitsap County Fairgrounds we played, and oh, the Crocodile, and uh, there were times... Uh, I mean, if I just named the list of bands that I booked at the OK Hotel during that time, uh, the gets opened a lot of these shows because I could add us to the bills, but Sublime was a band that... I had to play three or four times and uh, no one would come see them and everyone was like, ooh, a reggae band, they're terrible. (laughs) And they went back and became kind of popular and uh, uh, let's see, Sublime, Green Day played, Sunday Matinee, Nirvana played their last show at the OK Hotel before they went down and recorded, never mind, they needed money for the recording. Uh, so they went. They uh, asked to do a show there. Toad the Wet Sprocket. Have you heard of them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, More of a mellower band, but uh, yeah. yeah. Uh There were a few weeks that was just like night after night after night. There were shows, and there were. Uh, There's a skidhead movement going on, and during that time too. So you'd have like these anarchist squatter punks that would hang out there, uh, and then you would have. Uh, these skinheads, and then you would have these like Navy guys and soldiers that would come over right across the ferry from Bremerton, uh, and they would end up having fights, and the, the shows would get, uh, really crazy sometimes. And one time I had to pay, I had to pay Agent Orange to stop playing <laughs> because they, they started there, said they got like 40 minutes and people were going nuts, and, uh, Basically there are shows seven nights a week there and they were packed every night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you could go see a band in Seattle every single night, a good band. Yeah. It was yeah. an exciting time. Mm-hmm. And anyway, back to this Ann Powers uh came and and wrote about it in uh Spin magazine or Rolling Stone. She later reviewed uh, The Gets Frenching the Bully in the New York Times uh hmm. recommended uh records to buy for whatever year it came out. And yeah. uh MTV showed up there and did some filming, then they shot Sleepless in Seattle there. It's hard to differentiate for me kinda of what what bands I booked. Yeah. Because at one point I remember I I would be playing a show and booking shows the same night. Like I'd book the Color Box, the OK Hotel and The Vogue and play a get show all at the same time. That wraps up part
1: one of the Steve Moriarty interview. We're gonna leave you with another get song called Absinthe off of Frenching the Bully.